one thing too, just quick announcement while the kids are leaving is just next weekend, we will have a, a short, quick member meeting. We do those periodically, as you know. So if you're a member here, you're a covenant member here, you're encouraged to hang after the service. It's just right after the church service next Sunday. It'll, it'll take 10 or 15 minutes. We'll update you on some staff things, things like that. Um, we like to keep you informed as best we can. And so, and if you're not a covenant member here, you just, you're, you're either learning about this church or you, you, you feel like you've made this church your home, but you haven't stepped into membership. You're still sorting that out. That's okay too. You can come. We encourage you to come and, and, and be a part of that as well. So next Sunday, member meeting right after the service, right after communion, we'll give you uh, a few minutes to get a quick break, get a drink, whatever it is, use the restroom and then come back in. It'll take 10 or 15 minutes and we'll get into that. All right. Okay. Hey, let's, uh, we're, 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 we're traveling through the book of Exodus. And so get, get your Bibles out, turn them on, whatever you want to do. Um, it'll be up on the screens. I'm going to kind of, I'm reading a big chunk again. That'll probably be the theme of this series. And so, uh, we're, we're normally we'll stand, but just, I want you to be comfortable, take a deep breath, stay in your seats. Um, close your eyes. If you want to close your eyes, I mean, just whatever will help you be attentive to the word, be attentive to the text. That's ultimately what we want. We want you to be attentive to God in the text and see what it has to say to us. And so we're going to go to Exodus 2, Exodus 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 11. It's where I left off last week. Um, And then we're going to read through 3 as well, all the way to the end. Here's what, the, here's what the story tells us. One day, um, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he, he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and, and seeing no one, he, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses is afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, well, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, well, then where is he? Have you left the man? Call him. He may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. We'll skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And and Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, and God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Well, what, am I, what's, what am I going to say to them? And, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. And now please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, guys. We're Bible reading, church. That's why we do it. Um, the number 40 and the Exodus story is significant and repetitive, in case you're not familiar with it. Moses I mean, it, 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 you got to realize in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, and, and, like it's going fast, and you don't catch the timeline very easily. Uh, but you know, Moses is in Egypt, or sorry, he's 40 when he, he leaves Egypt. Um, 40 years later, at this mountain of Horeb, that's Sinai um, that it's pointing out, that's where he encounters God. So 40 years after he flees um, Egypt, and then after he leads the people out of Egypt, fast forward, it's, spoiler alert, but... He wanders in the wilderness with his people for 40 years. So it's 40, 40, 40. And if you're like, where's that in the text? Well, a lot of it you learn in Stephen's speech, Acts 7. You can turn there. 
And Stephen fills us in on some of that stuff. And then Jesus, of course, picks up on that 4D motif, that, that theme of 40. As you probably might know if you've read any of the Gospels, Jesus does a 40-day fast before he begins his ministry. And then even after his death and resurrection, he appears bodily to his apostles for how many days? 40. <laughs> Over a 40-day period. So 40. 40 is a big deal. 40 is significant. 40 happens over and over and over again. No, that's not, none of that's haphazard in the Bible. It all fits. You know, the Bible's this amazing story where everything's fitting together. There's all these dots. And over time, as you look closely, you start to, you start to make straight lines with it. And you go, oh my goodness. This is real and it's beautiful. Exodus isn't just one standalone story. It's one chapter in a really big story that God's telling about deliverance, about redemption, as Pastor Barry talked about. And you're a part of that bigger story. I want you to know that today, if you don't already know that. The question is, the question I'm asking, the question I would love for you to ask is, are you attentive to it? Like, not just aware of it out there somewhere, but are you being daily, weekly attentive to the story of the gospel and it's, you know, the grand narrative of it, but also then just your own little story and saying, how is this affecting me today? We're exploring the Exodus story, not just to highlight how Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, you know, that you read these stories in the Old Testament like the Exodus and you go, man, Jesus is all over. It. Like, this is how I'm understanding Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's understanding of Jesus and, and what he was up to. So it's not just about us foreshadowing, getting a picture of Jesus. It's also, the reason why we're studying a book like Exodus is to show you how that story gives identity and shape to your life. It gives you direction, hopefully, for what you face today. This ancient story has present-day realities and implications for you. A little example of something I think is beautiful here. Uh, on, on April 3rd, 1968, uh, you might be familiar with this. I was reading this in a Jonathan Sachs book. Um, Martin Luther King delivered a sermon in a church in Memphis, Tennessee. And the closing remarks of that sermon reference the work of Moses in his last days alive from the book of Exodus. And he spoke in that sermon of how Moses led his people out of slavery and how he eventually climbed up a mountain and looked out in the distance to a land that he was not destined to enter with the people. That's towards the end of the story of Exodus that we'll get to eventually. And referencing that scene, Dr. King said in his sermon, quote, so he said, I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and, look, and looked over. And I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. The next day, King was assassinated. Forty years later, from that day, Forty years later, from that year, right, the first African-American was elected president. I'm not sure what you, <laughs> you see in that little historical fact, but I see beauty and I see pain. They're co-mingled in that. I see loss and I see hope. God is real. People can continue to <laughs> attack him or think that he's not. They can look at the pain, the suffering of the world and say, God is dead. He's not. He's right under our noses. If we patiently pay attention, we see it. 
his, in his own mysterious way and timing, he's accomplishing the task of bringing what I would see as called as rest. He's bringing a sense of renewal. He's bringing redemption to the world and to our individual lives. Is there pain? Are there moments of pain? Are there moments of tragedy? Are there moments of loss? Oh, yeah. Man, you know it well. Many of you do. I know many of you. And you know that life following God is not void of pain and it is not void of loss. But if we're paying attention and praying along the way, I think we're invited behind the curtain, so to speak, to see that God is building a kingdom right under our noses, right in the midst of all the pain. And the pain is not pointless. We're not meant to be, though, just mere spectators of the kingdom, but participants. And I think King understood that, that the meta-narrative of the Scripture is one of hope. But there's sub-narratives of the Scripture that say, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm participating in this story of hope. Like, it's got to affect what I do at work. It's got to affect what I do with my spouse. He understood that. I hope we understand that. So here's... Lesson one out of the big text that we just read. And by the way, I'm going to cover a bit of chapter four. We didn't read it because I'm a reasonable man, <laughs> you know. So lesson one, if you're going to take up a life of believing and following God, you're going to have to wrestle with God. If you're going to follow him, you're going to be loyal to him, you're going to love him, you're going to worship him, you've got to wrestle with him. And everything that comes in your life, and here's the thing, that wrestling will leave you wounded sometimes. It just will. It, it, it'll have moments of pain and processing. I want you to know, and I, and I think Moses' life story wants to tell you this, whatever pains you face are all part of your preparation to not only believe in God, but to follow Him and to be used by Him. That God's good plans in His world involve you, both the winds and the losses that you experience, it's, it's all part of it. And, and, and this is what the first half of Moses' life show us. I'm not sure why Moses initially stepped out of his comfort zone. I, I don't know. I'm not sure why exactly he leaves the palace. He was raised in a palace. Forty years. Forty years he lived in a palace. I'm not sure why, after all of that, he goes out and sets... And to, to go encounter his people. But why he does it, I don't know, but it set him on a trajectory he could never imagine, a trajectory of heartache, of suffering, of loss, of confusion, but also rescue and redemption. You see it there, the beginning of what we read, chapter 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. He looked at their burdens. Now, if you remember, Moses might be a Hebrew by birth, but remember, he's an adopted Hebrew, adopted by a princess. So he's very much Egyptian. He's been raised Egyptian. He's been educated in Egyptian ways. He's lived in a palace for 40 years. And so, but here's the thing, and this is Acts 7, verse 23. It was to Stephen. This is when he was 40 years old. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. What's going on with Moses? Is he restless at home? What's causing him to do this? I don't know. We can't know for sure. But he clearly has, and you, you read it, 
if you, and you saw probably the repetition in it. He clearly has a penchant for justice, doesn't he? <laughs> like, it's obvious. He encounters an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew slave, and something in him just snaps. Does he mean to kill the guy? I don't know. Does he beat him up and then go, uh-oh, you know? And then he makes a sandcastle over him. Like, yeah. that's not going to work. He then encounters two Hebrews fighting, and he tries to intervene. So interesting how they say to him, who made you a prince? And then once he flees for his life, he encounters men dealing harshly with women at a well. And for whatever reason, he steps in and is like, don't do that. And he runs the bullies off. Moses' violence, seemingly he's kind of a violent man, <laughs> His violence in the name of justice probably comes natural, to be honest. As the saying goes, Jesus may be in your heart, but granddaddy's in your bones. And Moses has some of that. I mean, I know this, but Moses' great-grandfather is a man named Levi. He murdered somebody when that someone assaulted his sister, sexually assaulted his sister. And then the compassion piece, of course, in Moses is real too. It probably runs in the blood and in the, in the nurturing environment he's been in. His biological mother hit him, and then his adopted mother took pity on him simply because he was a Hebrew baby. And so something tells me that Moses has been exposed to people that have a, have a proclivity towards justice and compassion. It's just not fully developed in Moses yet. Did God select Moses? Because... You know, did God make him his, his rescuer because of his natural disposition, or did God give him his disposition uh, because of the calling he was going to receive? Yes. Right? It's mysterious. You look at your life, it's like, what happened has happened to you? And how does it fit the, 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 the calling that's on your life? And you're like, well, I don't know my calling. We're still working it out. But it all fits. And I don't know how it all fits, and I don't know the order of these things, but I know that God is behind it. In case you're asking the text, you know, when you're looking at Moses and what he did and working out his calling, it's like, wait, wait a second. It, 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 there's no comment on the fact that he killed someone. That's welcome to biblical narrative. It's left for you to figure out and process. Just to be clear, it is Moses' intervention here is a bit misguided. It's brash. It's rough around the edges. And God knows that, and he is going to deal with it in his own ways and in his own timing. And we'll get to that here in a minute. The point I'm trying to make first is that Moses leaves his place of privilege. He leaves his, he leaves his comfort zone and steps out to look upon suffering of people, to look at people at the bottom, to look at the oppressed. And when he encounters them and gets involved in it, all of a sudden now he's embroiled in it. And he suffers himself. Why hasn't 40 years of royal treatment, 40 years of royal education and palace living made him aloof and indifferent? I don't know. But I think the author is showing us that God is intent on using Moses. But Moses just hasn't, hasn't fully really understood it yet. There's still a whole lot of learning he's gotta, that has got to happen in his head and in his heart. 
This going out, this, this passion for his people led to 40 years. 40 years. And this, this, the text skips this, and so it takes you a while. So I'll just give it to you quickly and for free. It, this, this him going out of the palace, think about this, leads to 40 years of him wandering as a foreigner in a foreign land, wondering what happened. And now he identifies with what it means to be a, a foreigner, a sojourner. Now he identifies deeply with his people. Not only that, he ends up taking up the humble service of a shepherd, which, ironically, is the very profession, and you can see this in Genesis 46, verse 34, it's the very profession that the Egyptians hated. How ironic is that? And so, in 40 years, in Midian, leaves him humbled. It leads him to a place of total and complete surrender. It doesn't tell you that explicitly or directly, but I think you're meant to intuit it through the story. If you notice verse 22, this is chapter 2, he has his son, and he names him Gershom. Gershom has a meeting. The meaning is, and it tells us, the text tells us, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You know how some people, not you and not me, you know how some people are working out their own dreams and regrets through their kids? Moses is doing the same in a very sad way. He's naming his son after his own experience. He's resigned. He's like, I'm done. I have been kind of a failure. I'm going to name my son that. (laughs) It's like, thanks, Dad. Moses chose a name that represented how he felt about his situation. His earlier ambitions, his heroic energy, you could say, because he had a whole lot of heroic energy. As good-intentioned as all that was, it ended in failure, and he had made mistakes, and he deeply felt the consequences of those mistakes. All that was left was honesty, humility, surrender for Moses. And here's the thing, and I could spend a lot of time on this, and I just don't have the time. It is is right there, if you notice, if you read the story, it is right in that place that God shows up and meets with him in a burning bush. When he's humbled. Actually, when he's humiliated. When he's humiliated. And God deals with him in a profound and pivotal way. And God begins to use him. This quote I want to read to you from Richard Rohr. In Scripture... We see that the wrestling and wounding of Jacob are necessary for Jacob to become Israel. And the death and resurrection of Jesus are necessary to create Christianity. The loss and renewal pattern is so constant and ubiquitous that it should hardly be called a secret at all. Yet it is still a secret, probably because we do not want to see it. We, we do not want to embark on, the, on a further journey if it feels like going down, especially after we have put so much sound and fury into going up. This is surely the first and primary reason why many people never get to the fullness of their own lives. The supposed achievements of the first half of life have to fall apart and show themselves to be wanting in some way, or we will never move further. Why would we? Normally a job, a fortune, a reputation has to be lost. A death has to be suffered. A house has to be flooded. Or a disease has to be endured. The pattern, in fact, is so clear that one has to work rather hard or be intellectually lazy to miss the continual lesson. 
And yet, I would argue that so much of the Western church in this country continues to ignore that. See, God was moving from the moment Moses was dropped in the Nile and sent down floating in a little basket and scooped up. God was active. God was moving. And I am sure that in some mysterious way, and we're not told exactly why, that palace upbringing was utilized in Moses' life. Understanding the culture of Egypt, understanding what it meant to be royalty, understanding all of that. But the thing is, and this is what I'm getting at, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. If God was going to use him, and God was, he needed to have a reputation lost. He needed to know what it meant like and feel like to be a failure. He had to have regrets. How that all fits, I'm not saying God was saying go out and make mistakes. I'm just saying when we look at the story, this is the reality. He needed those things to shape him, to humble him. Who knows? Maybe without those, Moses would have been unbearable. He would have had a lot of purpose, a lot of energy, a lot of willingness to, to, to have justice come about, but just unbearable to be around. There's a lot of people I know. But the humiliation had sunk in. 40 years of it. If he was going to be used, he needed to become a shepherd. He needed to know what it was like. He, you see, he, he, he was going to shepherd and enslave people. He needed to know, therefore, what it was like to be afraid. Maybe Moses had never been afraid before. He, he needed to know what it was like to be a foreigner. He needed to know what it was like to be in a position of the powerless. He needed to know the patience that is learned when you tend sheep. Was it confusing for Moses? I'm sure it was. Was it painful for Moses? I'm sure it was. But it was pain with a purpose. It was absolutely, and we can see this, this is the luxury of reading it from our vantage point. It was wrestling with God for a greater plan. Lesson two, the wrestling we do with God ultimately isn't about us learning new techniques. It's not about us learning new skills. Or, or, or these little abilities or strategies. It's about learning right relationship. It is about ultimately learning reliance, not so much self-confidence. Let me explain what I mean. God meets with Moses in the burning bush that doesn't burn up, and God speaks. And there's a lot there, and I could probably preach another two sermons on it, and I'm not going to. He explains to Moses that despite all appearances, this is... Verse 7 and 8, chapter 3, quote, this is God speaking. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. And then go down to verse 10. This comes the calling upon Moses' life. Come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. When you, when you sandwich this stuff together, you realize this is what it means for you to read the Bible and try to understand it and make sense of it yourself and try to immerse yourself into the gospel and have it impact you. Are you delivered? Yes. But you're not meant to stand back and admire it. You're meant to be a participant in it as well. 
Like the gospel isn't just about liberation, it's about vocation. If all it is is about freedom. But they recognize that the Israelites weren't meant to just be a free people. They were being called to be a free people to go and worship and serve. It's right there in the text. So that they can go out and make sacrifices to the Lord. There's a reason they're being led into freedom. And here's the thing, and this is where I want to drill down just a little bit. There's a lot. There's a lot of lessons right here just in the conversation after Moses gets his calling. And this conversation, this, this pro, five times, five different ways Moses protests, doesn't it? It's fascinating to look at. So human. That's why I love the Bible. Perhaps underneath all of this, by the way, this, this, this kind of going back and forth between Moses and God, underneath it all is it's just a man still wrestling with past mistakes. That's what I pick up on immediately. He's still living out of that past narrative. He's living out of what he did in his 20s. He's living what he did in his 30s or 40s. I don't know. He's living out what he did in his teens. And it's impacting how he sees his sense of responsibility today. Time just doesn't always heal every wound. Amen? It's funny. Isaiah Isaiah was called and he said, Here I am, send me. (laughs) If you notice... Literally, the, the, the words are similar. <laughs> Moses is called and he says, here I am. Send somebody else. So let me break these down. First, his worry is, who am I? Who am I? He's concerned, of course, with what? He's concerned with his gifts, his abilities. He's, he's still living out of that past narrative in some way. He probably remembers how, look, like last time I got involved, I punched a guy and he didn't get up. Uh, last time I got involved, you know, they were like, who are you? What a business do you have? It didn't go so well, God. But God wants to show him that he's, 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 he's working out this identity question from the wrong end. It, it, it's not about who you are, Moses. It's about whose you are, Moses. You're thinking so egocentrically. The New Testament has a way of saying this. The old is gone, the new is here. Right? You've been died, you've died, you've been raised, your, your life is hidden in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price. Bought with a price. The Christian, if you are a Christian, you are someone who has come to terms with this. Like this is what it does, I mean, daily, weekly, just... You're coming to terms with this spiritual death and resurrection. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out what it means. That you're dead. You're not here anymore. There's somebody else here now. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do I get that immediately? No, I do not. It's a work in progress. I'm trying to figure it out. This is, of course, what Moses is figuring out in real time and you're watching it unfold in the story. You're trying to make sense of it and make it be attentive to this life-altering reality. The second worry is it goes from who I am to then, well, what am I supposed to say to these people? What do you expect me to say? They're going to they're gonna approach me. They're going to ask questions. He's worried about all the possible confrontations that he's going to have to deal with with the elders of Israel, the, the, the people that he left behind. You know what's interesting about that? There's no record of these elders saying, who said this to you? 
It seems to me that Moses is doing what so many of us do. He's coming up with a bunch of what-ifs to shirk responsibility. Well, what's, I mean, what if this happened? And he's going down that what-if, like, spiral. You've, you've never done that? Because Moses is doing it right here. Then we read it, and this is, we, 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 didn't, uh, uh, we didn't get into this. But verse in the next chapter, he says, this is the third worry, is, is over the reactions. What if they don't believe me, he asks. And fourth, he, he, he complains, that he, he's not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent. I, I, I can't, I don't, and I, we don't know. There's a mystery there. He literally says, I'm heavy-tongued, is what he says. I don't know what heavy-tongued means. Does he have a speech impediment? Maybe. Maybe he's just terrified in front of crowds. We, we really don't know what it is. We can only guess. It's probably a mix of both. And then lastly, he has no more worries and complaints. He just flat out begs for a replacement. Please send somebody else. I want to show you a snapshot of it just so we can really see it all together and see kind of quickly God's responses to each of them and step back and look at the whole conversation. He begins with who I am. Who am I, right? And God said, I'll be with you. He says, what shall I say to these people? And God said, tell them who I am. Well, they won't believe me. And God said, I'll give you signs. I can't speak eloquently. And God said, I'll teach you what to speak. Please send somebody else. And God says, I'll give you company, but you can't avoid or escape responsibility. Now, here's the thing. I find this absolutely fascinating. Notice that God never disagrees with Moses. He doesn't do what I do and you do as parents sometimes, where we go, no, 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 honey, you are good at public speaking. When you're like, hey, they're terrible. Right? Right? Like when my kid's like, Dad, did you see how fast I was running? Uh-huh. Right? You were really slow. You were really slow. You were the slowest kid. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that with Moses. God doesn't do it with you. He's not saying, oh, Moses, don't be silly. Don't be silly, Moses. Maybe more significant is the fact that God never injects Moses with super charisma. He probably had, if he did have a speech impediment, he probably had it for the rest of his life. Every response to every excuse is not a change in Moses' human constitution. It's a change. It's a change in reliance. It's a relationship. You're going to have to deal with this, Moses. I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to make this super easy on you. I'm sorry. Think about who I am. What do you make of me? You know? That's what God is doing, dealing with him. God doesn't change the struggle for Moses. He just offers him a trusting relationship. And this is in the words of J. Alec Moyer. He says, when Moses faced his vocation, his reaction was, I love this, I can't, therefore I won't. And the Lord brought him to the point where he would say instead, I can't, but he can, therefore I will. There it is. That's your life. It's what you're working out. It's what I'm working out. And again, Moyer is so helpful here. He says, if Moses lives in our memories as the towering leader of Israel in deliverance and pilgrimage, it, will, it's, it is well to remember where he started 
insecure, uncertain, unprepared, and unworthy. And here's the point I want to press. I'm not sure that totally went away for Moses. There's actually not evidence of it. When you read out the whole story, you realize that this was a continued struggle for Moses. Even after this conversation, even after a burning, I mean, I've literally said, it's like a pun I use. I wish I had a burning bush, you know, like a sign. Even after this, and he goes to his father-in-law to ask permission to leave and go back to Egypt, there's not a shred of a detail from this conversation. He fibs. He goes to his father-in-law, and he's like, hey, can I go back to Egypt because I, I want to see if my brothers are still alive. If you're reading the story, you're like, that is not the reason you're going back. Why is he doing that? You just had a burning bush, and God spoke to you out of it. It seems to me Moses is still embarrassed. Just like you're embarrassed sometimes about like the fact that you're actually dealing with your spirituality and some of your friends aren't. And you don't know how to talk about it yet. And it's not going to go away, but you're in process. So is Moses. He's in process. And he's going to have to continue to deal with his insecurities. He's going to have to steal, still deal with his ego and all of it and his past failures and all of that. It's all going to stick with him. And God's going to stick with him. Whatever the reason, God isn't mad. And Moses will little by little learn with fits and starts to trust in the voice of God over his own internal fears. And so where do you, I don't know, you know, here in a little bit we'll come to the table and take part in Jesus. But before that, I, I don't know where you find yourself in the story. I, I, I don't know how it shapes your understanding of your own spiritual journey, because that's what we're talking about. You are on a spiritual journey. I'm on a spiritual journey. I, we all have pains. We have regrets. We have past stories that plague us. We have current realities um, that really rob us of a sense of joy or a purpose. Like we all, many of us right now are, are dealing with certain we're shirking a certain responsibility right now. There's a particular calling because you're like, well, I'm not Moses. Get over that. There is a responsibility you have in your own workplace, in your own home, in your own social circle, in your school. There are certain responsibilities God is calling upon you. And you're afraid of them. You're avoiding them. Something is going on. I don't know. I think the question is, are you, in dealing with these, are you getting more nihilistic? Are you growing more bitter? Are you growing more cynical about life? Or are you getting more attentive to the humiliations that you have in your life? Like naming them. Being able to call them out and let, you know, the humiliations of your own life and letting them soften you and, and create in you a longing for a bigger and more beautiful story. Because as painful as life can be sometimes, if we truly look to God and deal with Him honestly, if, if, if we bring our humiliations, you know, as, as Kurt Thompson says, if we name this stuff to tame this stuff, you know, like, if we do that and we look to God and say, I don't know to do with this, man. I, I've been a failure here. This has not worked out. Or I am, I am beating a head against my wall. I, 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 I cannot do this on my own, right? If we do that, uh, it doesn't end in resignation. It ends in intimacy, and it ends in hope with God. That He meets us there. 
I mean, the way you do that is you realize Moses, see, he doesn't just foreshadow for us uh, the redeemed. He foreshadows the Redeemer. It, Moses isn't just showing us what life can be like following God. He also shows us what God in Christ has done for us on our behalf with all the pain, with all the beauty. Notice in, in, in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, God says to Moses, I know their sufferings. That's God saying. And I have, this is, the language is so instructive. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egypts and to bring them up. The point, if you catch the gospel, it's hyperlinking Jesus. Jesus didn't stumble upon our suffering and offer wisdom and rules from afar so that we could get to him. So many people think that. Like Jesus looked down at our sufferings and said, follow these rules, the Ten Commandments, figure those out, and then you can get to me. No, no, right? Like the gospel, that's not the story. It comes down, right? He, it, and he didn't merely go out like Moses. He was sent to us. He looked upon the burdens of the world and said, I'm doing something about this, and I'm coming down so that they can come up. The 4th century uh, church father, Athanasius, wrote, God was made man so that man might be made God. That's what he was working out right there. But Christ didn't leave a palace. He left his heavenly home. I mean, it's, that's what we're meant to try to imagine and grab, grab, get our heads around and our hearts around. He took on all the, uh, took, he took on our flesh. He took on all of our limitations. I mean, this is wild. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made, this is talking about Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's like Jesus has to become like us in the same way Moses had to become like the Israelites. To know what it means to have pain. He took that on. The same way Moses became a shepherd, had to. Jesus becomes our good shepherd, who, quote, lays his life down for his sheep, John 10, 11. In the same way Moses was rejected by his brothers, both in that one scene that you read where they're like, who made you judge over us? And then they will continue to reject him out in the wilderness. In that same way, Jesus was rejected then, and he is still now. John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's the same thing, over and over and over. In the same way Moses was sent to confront the evil over Israel, Christ was sent to confront the evil over the world, which is sin and death. In the same way Moses is humbled and eventually will suffer for the sake of his people and mission, Christ will go further and bear the humiliation, and he will suffered death on a cross for the sake of the world. Jesus is our secure and unfailed Moses. He became like us so that we could be like him. I hope you see it today, afresh. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but it might stick in a new way for you. If you don't know that story, you are called to rehearse it to yourself over and over and over again with all its pain, with all its beauty. Because if you don't, you're never actually going to wrestle with God. Will you experience pain in your life? Oh my goodness, yes. And you will change. But I don't know what your change will be. and I don't know where it will lead. Will it be hardness of heart or will it be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we do that at the table. We pray. We lay our humiliations out. We name them. We look to Him. We think about what we're being called into. We continue to worship in prayer. You can come Wednesday mornings. We'll be right here and pray. Invite you into that to continue to work this stuff out. We continue to give our lives to, to acts of service at the bottom, not just the people at the top. These are the things that we can do to practice these things. We do audits on our lives. We think about the things that are humiliating or painful to us, and we share these things with a trusted friend. Wherever you are this morning, doesn't matter if you're a member of the church or not, if Christ is your Lord and you're processing that genuinely and honestly, you are invited to come take part. We're doing this regularly every week to remember his death and resurrection in our place. This bread represents his body, Jesus' body broken for us, and this cup of wine represents his blood that is shed for us. And so you can come forward to this table or to this table and take a piece and dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. If that is not your confession, that is totally okay. Don't take part in this. Take part in prayer. Take part in curiosity. Let us pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. It is amazing to think that you stooped down, you condescended, you came to us because we couldn't get to you. That is a truth that I hope sticks in our hearts in a new and fresh way today. We are so thankful for stories like this that remind us what it means to be a human, what the human experience is, that you know it very well, that you are deeply compassionate to us, you are attentive to us, that you have not abandoned us. But God, there is pain and there are, there are real troubles that we still face. But we proclaim this morning that because of your son Jesus, you have overcome the world. We thank you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.